Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall podcast. It is officially our third episode, and for some reason, you people are still listening. We're coming to you live, actually, from spring break in Florida. It is beautiful outside. We're on the beach. The seagulls are chirping. It couldn't be a more uh, beautiful location. And we are super psyched to talk to you about uh, one of the most topical and relevant podcasts I think that we'll ever have. If I think it is the most topical podcast we will ever do. I would agree with that. Um, so this week, we are talking about the Supreme Court. And I think it is fair to say that outside of, you know, the words President Trump, the Supreme Court is probably the thing that is most written about in the last year and a half. It, this saga has been going on, if you think about it, since February 2016. When, February 2016. Following the death of uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, this this story began, and we're still quite literally in the midst of it. I think that the second that Justice Scalia died and that news broke, everybody, everybody who follows politics, you know, even all Americans knew how crazy our political landscape was about to get. Do you remember where you were when, when that news broke? Uh, yes, we were actually at the Washington Hilton at uh, Naaman. I don't think I'll ever forget. You You were at Naaman. I was up at uh, up at Harvard for a speech and debate tournament. I came, I, I, I found a couple friends, and the first thing they said to me was, Justice Scalia is dead. Uh, and I, I think we all had a lot of immediate thoughts mm-hmm. after hearing that news. Um, he was also a Hoya, and it's, it's very sad to see um, one of our own leave the court, especially absolutely. in such a prominent position. But I think just from a political standpoint, it's absolutely Huge. fascinating. Huge. It's a game changer. And uh, just to recap for everybody here. Um, so, uh, Justice Scalia dies. President Obama nominates Merrick Garland. Forget what you want to think about politics for a second. He is one of the most accomplished jurists. Yeah, he's a federal judge. If you're not familiar, he was one of the people that brought the Oklahoma City bomber back in the 90s uh, to justice, which I think just speaks volumes to his credibility as a public servant, as a justice, just as a as a human being. This guy has been on the Supreme Court shortlist for literally years. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this was his shot. And, um, you know, Republicans decided um, that they were not going to give him a hearing. They were not going to give him a vote. And in the end, that was a huge political gamble because one of two things happens. Either um, Hillary Clinton wins the presidency and they are going to have to end up dealing with Judge Garland or one of her own nominees. Probably more liberal yes. had uh, Secretary Clinton been elected president. Or Donald Trump wins the presidency. And Mitch McConnell made probably the biggest political gamble of his career, and it paid off for him. In Hands down. Hands down in, you know, times 100 it paid off for him. And at the end of the day... President Obama did not get his last Supreme Court nominee through, and President Trump got his first nominee, uh, his first Supreme Court nominee on day one, um, because that seat was open. And he nominated Judge Neil Gorsuch, who is, again, a very accomplished jurist. Yeah, I I don't think anything can be said uh, disparagingly about his qualifications to be on the court. This is clearly a man who's been in the legal system for a long time, has a Great, uh, great depth of body of work, uh, and has been on the conservative shortlist. I think since Bush, I think he yeah. was originally on the 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 Bush shortlist for justices on the Supreme Court, uh, which I think is very interesting because you'd think a, a President Trump who doesn't necessarily conform to Republican orthodoxy no. uh, would be hesitant to put forward you know the traditional conservative Supreme Court candidate. Uh, But I think one of the key maneuvers that Republicans were able to do once they realized the inevitability of a Trump nomination 
uh, as the Republican candidate was get him hemmed in by mm-hmm. making him release a list of, uh, of conservative Supreme Court candidates that he would be interested in nominating. So I believe uh, what a lot of people are talking about, um, and especially you can hear from our guests later, uh, them talk about how President Trump felt confined to that list. And and here we are, again, big win for uh, Senator uh, Mitch McConnell and the rest of the Republicans uh, in the the leadership because they got their their choice. They got their nominee. I think what we're going to do next is I think we're going to go through the process really quickly. Yeah. um, Because... This is probably one of the most opaque political processes um, we have in our political system. So um, presidents generally have an idea of who they would nominate to the court, you know, going in regardless of who, um, regardless of if there is an opening. There is always some sort of Supreme Court shortlist. Presidents go through very serious vetting processes. Sure. Um, And our two guests are going to talk about that in detail. Um, But they go through very serious vetting uh, to find that candidate. And once they do that, they nominate them. Uh, nominees generally tend to spend time on the Hill, whipping votes, you know, talking to senators, people who are going to end up deciding their fate. Um, and then after that, uh, there is confirmation hearings. Yeah, and I think from there, and we'll see this on March 20th when uh, when Justice uh, Judge uh, rather Gorsuch gets his confirmation hearings um, when that process begins. Um, but it starts off in the Senate Judiciary Committee, and they're going to talk with the... Uh, talk with the potential justice, get a sense of their legal philosophy, get a sense of, you know, where they stand on, on a bunch of litmus tests for the court, um, who they are as a person, you know, what have they done in the past, uh, then they'll vote to confirm. And uh, if, if uh, the Judiciary Committee passes it, then it'll go to the larger Senate body. And I think that's where uh, Republicans might run into some trouble yeah, in definitely. this process, because as it stands now, um, as you may know, there's the filibuster rule that allows Democrats uh, to basically prolong debate on the nominee um, until eventually uh, they're able to to kill or obstruct the process. Now, the conversation we've been hearing lately is that Republicans, uh, Mitch McConnell at the helm, are considering using what's called the nuclear option, which means eliminating that 60-vote threshold to uh, invoke closure or end debate, Mm -hmm. uh, essentially kill the filibuster. And in doing so, that means that uh, Republicans with only 52 uh, members or members in the the Senate body will be able to basically – close debate whenever they see fit yeah. and vote to confirm with a simple majority. Uh, and that would be, I think, worst case scenario for the Democrats if they... And the Republicans, really. I think so as well. Yeah. Uh, just from the Democratic point of view, you know, if you lose that, uh, if, if you use the filibuster and you end up losing both the uh, the nomination vote or the confirmation vote and the filibuster, that's a that's a lose-lose. Yeah. I think Senate, uh, Republicans also lose if they kill the filibuster because, you know... 10, 20, 30, I mean, eventually there's going to be a Democratic president. Yeah. We'd hope uh, the balance of power swings at some point. You know, That's just what we've seen in this country. And then they might not have that option on the table for them. Yeah. Uh, and I think if you're a candidate before the Supreme Court, you don't want to be confirmed no. by, a, by a nuclear option, filibuster-killing uh, motion. You want that consensus. You want to yeah. be able to, to get a, a, a more broader uh, base of support for you as a justice. Otherwise, you know, it greatly undermines your credibility. You're sparking uh, great partisan bickering and, and infighting. Uh, and I, I think that can be ultimately destructive, be destructive to both the court, the candidate, and uh, the parties themselves. So we'd like to see you know, some sort of resolution here. Uh, but we just don't know what that is because clearly we're not the experts. Yeah, <laughs> so we on are. That note. <laughs> uh, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about our experts before we bring them in. Uh, we have three experts here this week. Bob Barnes has been 
covering the Supreme Court for the Washington Post for years. Um, the guy has historical knowledge of the Supreme Court going back to, you know, my grandparents, grandparents, grandparents. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy has a full understanding of the context, and he does a great job of putting what we're seeing here into a perspective. Uh, we also have Mr. Ron Klain, who was uh, integral, to say the least, in the last two Democratic president's administrations. Um, you know, he has overseen multiple Supreme Court nominations and has overseen that process for both President Clinton and President Obama. Successfully, I Su- might add. <laughs> Successfully, yes. And he knows uh, he knows how to get it done. Our other guest this week is Sarah Fagan. Sarah Fagan was the White House political director under President George W. Bush um, and oversaw his 2004 campaign. Um, she was also a very real part of the political decisions that went into the um, deciding of Supreme Court nominees. Yeah, an important job that she had was not to manage necessarily the legal aspects of the nomination process, but rather she was running the -the on-the-ground communications battle, trying to win over public opinion for a lot of Bush's nominees. And I think here we get to see the origins of the really bitter partisan clash over Supreme Court nominees that the, has sort of continued into today. So uh, I guess we have we have nothing else to say. We have nothing more to offer you guys. So we'll bring on our guest. So welcome, everyone. We have uh, someone who truly has a great depth of knowledge about the Supreme Court. We have Robert Barnes from the Washington Post here, also known as at SCOTUS Reporter. Mm-hmm. Our favorite right. Follow Twitter him on Twitter. Handle. <laughs> we love that handle. Uh, so we just wanted to ask you, you know, you've been uh, a report on the Supreme Court for about a, a decade. That's now, right. right? Uh, and covering politics since even longer. So mm-hmm. if you could just tell us, you know, why did you choose uh, the Supreme Court? You know, how did you sort of fall into that issue area to make the focus of your of your uh, reporting? Well, I kind of fell into it. Um, it An editor asked me to take over for a year for a reporter Mm -hmm. who was uh, the Supreme Court reporter. He was going off to write a book, uh, and they said, would you take his uh, job for a year? And I said, okay, I'll do that. There wasn't, it was between elections. Um, And uh, I got there. I thought it was fascinating. I, I loved the stories. I loved the court. Uh, I love the idea that there are constantly new issues coming before the court and that you're learning all of this stuff. And so at about the six month point, I began plotting how I was going to uh, ease <laughs> out the reporter I who was it. coming back. Uh, but fortunately <laughs> for me, he decided to come back and go to the editorial board that left uh, the job open and I've been doing it ever since. There you go. Yeah. Wow. A lot of our audience, most of our audience, I would guess, is uh, college students. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, we've followed and grown up in, you know, the Bush administration and the Obama administration. Um, and we've really only seen uh, SCOTUS nominations for, you know, four or five people. And it seems in the past couple, they've become hyper-partisan. Mm-hmm. Is there precedent for this, um, you know, in administrations before, or is this a new thing? Well, I think we're entering a new phase. I mean, uh, certainly the Clarence Thomas uh nomination was very close, the closest one of anyone on the present court. Uh, But, you know, there were a lot of other issues there, the allegations that were made about sexual harassment. It really changed uh, the whole tone of that nomination. Um, But, you know, in these most recent ones, uh, it really has become different. Uh, The senators uh, play to their bases. 
they don't seem to get punished uh, anymore for doing things that in the past I think would have been uh, something that would have been tough for them to do politically. For instance, I think people thought that it was going to be harder um, for senators to vote against uh, Sonia Sotomayor, who was the first uh, Latina uh, to be nominated and uh, obviously a woman. Uh, those were things that always seemed to cause problems for uh, senators in the past, but it didn't. She really didn't get that many uh, Republican votes, and those senators did not suffer uh, at all for opposing her nomination. In fact, uh, some of those who did support her uh, got in trouble with constituents. And so I think it's it's become uh, the senators really have to be careful of their base uh, when they make these votes now. So just as a follow-up to that, is there any way to sort of reverse this trend, or are we always just going to have very very narrow votes on on these nominees and and we're gonna have to find someone who you know plays to either base rather than you know someone who's truly a, a consensus candidate well you know i i think one place you might have a consensus candidate is if you get a president who has an opening early in his or her uh, administration and a senate controlled by the opposite party uh then there would really be a reason for the president to try to find a consensus candidate. Um, but absent that, I, I don't think that there is that kind of uh, impetus anymore. In a way, the court is a victim uh, of its own uh, success or really its own importance. Uh, the court has been deciding so many important issues uh, in the last decade and maybe in the last 20 years that I think that the stakes have really been ratcheted up. And, you know, they nominate uh, younger people. They stay there for 20 to 25 to 30 years. And so all of that adds to the fact that these nominations are incredibly important uh, and because they have the uh, opportunity to shape the court for years to come. Sure. Well, that's a real optimistic uh, uh, message. Right? <laughs> Unfortunately, we're stuck in a very different situation, as we, as we all know. We have yeah. President Trump. We have a Republican-controlled Senate. Um, so I guess what I want to know is when a candidate, or a nominee rather, like Gorsuch, is making the round, rounds around Capitol Hill, talking to senators of both parties, what's going on in those conversations? Mm -hmm. uh, is it just for show? Or is there an actual attempt to, to understand, is he going to change any minds? You know, is he going to change Chuck Schumer's mind in these conversations? He's not going to change Chuck Schumer's mind, but he <laughs> might change the mind of some other Democrats uh, who uh, come from states where they have to pay more attention uh, to the other side where their seats are not terribly safe. Um, and I think that you really saw what Gorsuch is doing, you know, uh, when President Trump criticized uh, the judges, uh, criticized the judiciary, said that this hearing was a um, uh, on the, at the Ninth Circuit was, you know, disgraceful. You heard uh, and heard it leaked uh, that uh, Judge Gorsuch said he disagreed, uh, that uh, you know, you have to stand up for the judiciary right. uh, that they try to do it. And I think that was a very deliberate thing to show I can be independent. I am not, uh, you know, going to toe the line completely. And I think that that's what they are trying to show members of the opposite party, uh, which is that I can be independent. Definitely. 
Um, so I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Neil Gorsuch gets confirmed. Okay. Uh, Crazy whether that, thought. Whether, take, I don't know where that came from. Take, whether, it, take it to Vegas, baby. <laughs> whether he gets 60 votes or not, I'm going to assume he gets confirmed here. Okay. Um, and we're going to go on a hypothetical and say that, um, you know, there is a constitutional crisis with Trump. Uh, you know, President Trump oversteps his bounds. Does a conservative court rule in his favor? It all depends on what the issue is. That's just too, uh, it, it's... There are too many sort of open questions there, I'm afraid. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, judges take very seriously the role of the judiciary. Um, and the chief justice right now especially does. And so uh, you have seen um, justices vote against the president who uh, nominated them all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not on some of the very biggest issues, but on um, on a number of issues, President Obama didn't have a particularly good record uh, at the Supreme Court, and sometimes the two justices that he nominated uh, voted against him. Uh, and so, uh, justices take their role very seriously. They take the court very seriously, um, and I think that uh, once they are on the bench. Um, uh, it, it doesn't, they are not afraid to rule against the executive in any way. Sure. And just a final question, uh, just putting in a, a broader context, you know, what the court is facing and, and where it is right now. What in your mind is the biggest question in front of the court that uh, the, once uh, Gorsuch, if Gorsuch gets confirmed rather, you know, what, what's that first big decision that they're going to have to make? Well, I don't know what the first big one is because they haven't really... Um, taken some cases uh, that would uh, would lead you there. Um, I would say that the coming issues that I, I think are going to be very important are technology and surveillance and the way they intrude on individuals. Uh, I think uh, transgender rights mm -hmm. uh, is a coming issue that the court is going to have to deal with, if not this term, then later. I'm sorry. And <laughs> that uh, uh, also religious liberty, I think, is a real coming issue. You saw that uh, a lot with the um, last term, with the Hobby Lobby case, with other cases that have to do with uh, impinging on uh, the religious uh, rights and liberties of uh, commercial business owners as compared to uh, respecting the rights of the individuals who work for them. Mm -hmm. I think that's a real coming uh, issue that we're going to see more and more of. Great. Well, it seems like all of our listeners are blowing up your phone with all these <laughs> tweets at SCOTUS Report. Uh, but thank you so much, uh, Mr. Barnes, for taking the time to, uh, to talk with us today. I yeah. think you really helped put everything in perspective. Yeah, Good. My pleasure. We all understand the history a little bit more. Oh, well, I enjoyed it. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Fly on the Wall podcaster here with Ron Klain. Um, and Mr. Klain, you have had, uh, to say, a hand in every uh, nomination process for Democratic presidents seems like an understatement. Um, <laughs> but why don't you explain what your role has been um, for the last few Democratic presidents? Well, uh, so for President uh, Clinton, uh, I was the associate counsel of the president in charge of judicial selection when he selected uh, Justice Ginsburg mm -hmm. and led the process that led to her selection and led the process that led to her confirmation. 
Uh, I was the chief of staff of the Justice Department when he selected Justice Breyer and worked on his confirmation as well. Then for President Obama, uh, I was in the White House and given my experience in the prior nominations and uh, my work on the Hill, uh, he asked me to get involved in the process that led to the selection of uh, Justice, Gins- Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan. So worked on all four of those. And before that, I was chief counsel of the Judiciary Committee when the committee considered uh, uh, Justice Souter and Justice Thomas. Uh, so I've kind of been on both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue in the mm-hmm. process. So um, in the panel that you were just at, you said that you put all of these, um, you know, these potential nominees under a microscope. So when you are looking for, uh, you know, people to nominate, what are you looking for and how does that process work? Well, so generally, um, you know, early on in the process, you um, uh, we met with the president. We present him with a list of potential candidates, a very long list of candidates, talk about their strengths and weaknesses. And then over time, develop more and more materials about the ones he's most interested in, backgrounds on their writings, their professional career, uh, all these different kinds of elements of their, of their personality and their career. And then at some point in time, the president kind of narrows the list, and we do in-person interviews with the candidates, try to develop more insights about them. And then ultimately, before the president decides, we bring the people to the White House. The president would talk to them and, and then make a decision. I think it's, a, it's one of the most um, uh, consequential decisions a president makes. Uh, presidents serve for four or eight years. Their Supreme Court nominees serve for 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's something they're going to leave behind. And um, so both President Obama and President Clinton took it very, very seriously. You know, it was a little different. President Clinton and President Obama also both were accomplished lawyers themselves. They both read the law, knew the law, both had taught the law. They both were law professors. So, um, you know, they kind of wanted I th- probably more materials and more in-depth materials than the president probably who isn't a lawyer or doesn't have the kind of legal background uh, that they had. Definitely uh, involved in the process, to say the least, those presidents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sort of absolutely. know what they want to look, what yeah. they're looking for. Uh, so I, I just have a question. When you get down to your list and you're narrowing it down and, and the list leaks and everyone's talking about it, what ends up being that tiebreaker between multiple very qualified candidates? I imagine it's very hard to look at you know, your top three choices and, and find some things that differentiate them. So how do well, you make that choice? I think, um, uh, you know, I'm proud of the fact that for both the presidents I worked for, both of their picks came from the initial list. So in the case of President Clinton, uh, really, his two finalists were Justice Ginsburg and Justice Breyer, and he picked Justice Ginsburg first and Justice Breyer second. And, <laughs> and in the case of President um, Obama, uh, you know, it's been reported he looked at three or four finalists the first time he had a vacancy, and uh, Justice Sotomayor was obviously one of them, but Justice Kagan was another person he interviewed the first time. So I think if the staff's done a good job, you're putting before the president candidates uh, that he's going to uh, uh, choose from, and candidates... Uh, that hopefully, you know, if he has multiple vacancies, will fill uh, those vacancies. And then I think if you've got a qualified list of people and a qualified group of candidates coming to the president, then I think the ultimate decision is one about, uh, in some way, some kind of uh, feel or connection, um, uh, some sense of the moment in history. Um, uh, In the case of uh, President Clinton's selection of Justice Ginsburg, I think there was a a feeling that uh, the Supreme Court had only ever had one female member ever in its history, and and uh, bringing a, one of the great feminist leaders, feminist legal leaders, onto the Supreme Court was a was a historic choice. I think, in the case of Justice Sotomayor, the Supreme Court had never had a Hispanic nominee; there had never been a Hispanic on the Supreme Court. And I think the chance to make that piece of history was weighed on President Obama when he when he picked her. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, we can definitely say that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has, you know, a cult of personality yes. around her. Yes, she I'd does. I'd call that a successful pick. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, we might be a little biased here. Um, anyway, um, so uh, you've talked us a bit through how you get to uh, nominees. Um, but talk us through the preparation for, you know, after you nominate someone, yeah. um, how you get them uh, prepared for, you know, Senate meetings and, you know, ultimately the um, confirmation hearings. Yeah. Well, so the nominees, obviously, the answers are their own and no one's scripting them and right. no one's telling them what to say. They're sitting judges. Uh, they're great, brilliant people. Uh, so what you do as a staff is you're really trying to help them understand the process help them understand what the senator's concerns are, you know, try to say, well, Senator Smith says that this is what he or she's going to ask you about. These are their concerns. Uh, help them explain how the whole thing's going to unfold. Uh, that's really what, what, your, what your role is. And, um, and then also kind of uh, make them aware of the fact that they're going to be answering questions in a time-limited format. That's something judges <laughs> don't really do. The senators have time allocations. And so they need to kind of think about how their answers fit in the time allocation. But, uh, but again, I think if you're uh, you nominated to the Supreme Court, you're the kind of person who knows what you think and knows what you want to say about it. And so that's, uh, you know, so that's kind of, they, they come to it with that. And what you're really trying to do is just help them navigate the process of it. I guess uh, when you're put in this position, being nominated for the Supreme Court, you know, inevitably there's some level of public visibility that yeah. they're automatically exposed to as soon as their name is mentioned and, and it goes up in lights. Talk to us about a memory of a crisis, major, minor, that you had to weather through with one of these nominees and getting them over the hurdle. Well, you know, one of them, um, with Justice Sotomayor, uh, um, uh, a couple weeks after she was nominated, she was making her courtesy calls on Capitol Hill. She fell down and she broke her ankle. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and like then she was in a cast, and we had to, you know, and and all these things. She had to prop it up, and it was hard for her to get around, and so on and so forth. And so that had a lot of logistical complexity because <laughs> if people know Capitol Hill. It's you know the offices are all far apart, and, there's, and you got to walk around and the whole thing. So, I, you know, I think it was a reminder. I mean, obviously it wasn't a huge setback, and she got confirmed overwhelmingly. But it was a reminder that these people are people. And like the same things that happen to all of us happens to them. They fall down and break their ankle. You know, they um, they have some just human thing happen to them, and you have to build that into the process and understand that that's that's uh, that's it. You know, there's a great moment in Justice Kagan's confirmation hearing where uh, Senator Graham, Lindsey Graham, was asking her questions about some uh, about terrorism law and the, the law of how you could question suspects, and he said. And he raised the case of one of these uh, bombing things that was that was uh, that was foiled on on uh, Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. And he said to her, "So, do you remember where you were on Christmas Eve when this happened?" And she said, "Well, not specifically, but like all Jewish people, I was probably going and getting Chinese food and going to the movies." You know, <laughs> it was just a moment that reminded people, as I said, that these people are people, and um, they're obviously hold exalted positions, and they're great intellects, and amazing talents but uh but at the end of the day they're human beings like you and me it's uh kind of hard to remember uh sometimes Definitely. when they're you know putting down these you know decisions of such weight yeah um so i'm gonna pivot a little bit of course um in 2016 uh you said on the axe files that which is a friend a friend pod, a pod friend yeah a pod friend good yeah. friends up in chicago yeah um the refusal of Senate Republicans to consider President Barack Obama's Supreme Court nominee Merrick Garland until after the 2016 election was an unprecedented move. And you noted that in 125 years, every nominee has gotten a hearing. 
Um, and now, uh, you know, we have uh, Judge Gorsuch on the table. Um, and Democratic voters and a lot of people in the progressive wing are calling for um, similar tactics of, you know, keeping him out of a hearing, you know, not giving him a vote. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I, I haven't really heard it say that there shouldn't be a hearing on Judge Gorsuch, and there is going to be a hearing. It's going to be start on March 20th, and he's going to get a chance to make his case. Mm-hmm. A, a chance that was denied to Judge Garland, who never got a chance to explain to the American people why he would be a great justice on the Supreme Court. He would have been a great justice on the Supreme Court. And and to not even give him a hearing was an outrage, unprecedented outrage, um, and, uh, and that was unfair. Judge Gorsuch is going to get that opportunity. He's going to be able to make his case. Uh, the American people will be able to decide what they think about him. Uh, uh, I think most Democrats will vote against his confirmation, as they should. I think he's an extremely conservative nominee. I think he's at the far end of the legal spectrum. I don't think he's drawn from the, the mainstream of even conservative legal thought. And so it won't surprise me if the conclusion most Democrats reach at the end of that hearing process is to vote against him. That'll be a conclusion based on Judge Gorsuch's writings and, and, and views, and obviously how he answers the questions in the hearings and what he says. And again, that's all I ever, I think it's all most of us ever thought Merrick Garland should have is the chance to stand and sit in public, answer the questions, make his case, and then let people decide. And that was what was unfairly denied to, to Judge Garland. I guess just to push back a little bit, we have heard Democrats call for not necessarily blocking the hearing from happening or a final vote, but just tactics of obstruction and, and trying to make it difficult and trying to make Republicans pay. Do you feel like that's, I don't want to say childish or immature, but do you feel like that's unjustified or do you feel like they have some basis, you know, based on what happened with Judge Garland to to push back or is there some hypocrisy there? No, I don't, look, I, I, again, I don't know about making them pay or anything like that. What I do know is that... Um, uh, that Donald Trump put out a list of 20 or so candidates he considered, public list. And of those people, probably Judge Gorsuch was one of the two or three most conservative candidates. So it's not a shock that a lot of Democrats say, mm-hmm. I'm inclined to oppose his nomination. And, uh, you know, by contrast, Judge Garland was a very moderate uh, Democratic nominee. He, um, he um, uh, in fact, had been cited by many Republicans as the kind of person they would support to the Supreme Court. Uh, Senator Hatchinson was the kind of person who support the Supreme Court. So I think, you know, uh, this is a dialogue. I mean, to get a little political science-y for a second. You know, this <laughs> Please is a, do. Yeah, why not, <laughs> the right? Georgetown professor. Yeah, yeah. Coming out. So, so look, this is a dialogue between the branches. And Donald Trump was elected president. Democratic senators were elected to the Senate. You know, everyone had their voters and everyone got voted. Got it voted in. And I think... The, the question is, how does that dialogue go on? And I think in the case of Judge Garland, President Obama said, I'm going to put forward someone who's not the most liberal person I could pick, who's not the one maybe that the Democratic base likes the most, but I think is an excellent candidate who Republicans had praised. And the Republicans said, don't care, won't even give him a hearing. I think what's going on with Judge Gorsuch is President Trump has said, I'm going to pick someone who's from the most extreme part of my list. I don't really care what the Democrats think about that. There's no real consultation with the Democrats. President Obama tried very hard to consult with Republicans. So, uh, I, you know, I think that it's not a surprise that this nomination is headed to that kind of confrontation. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm glad you got a little political science on us here. Yeah. Because, um, I'm about to throw it right back at you. There has been a lot of talk um, about, you know, the nuclear option. Um, you know, getting rid of the filibuster and, um, you know, really having Supreme Court nominees decided by 50 votes. What are your thoughts on, like, you know, just philosophically, ethically here, you know, how, what consensus should a Supreme Court nominee have? If you had to set the bar personally, what would your vote number be? Is it 60? Is it a supermajority, simple majority? Well, again, I think we need to be clear about this, which is that the filibuster is a decision that cuts off debate on a nominee. 
most of the recent Supreme Court nominees have had fewer than 60 votes to get confirmed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Justice Kagan, Justice Sotomayor, uh, and Justice Alito all were confirmed with f- fewer than 60 votes. Uh, but there was a supermajority of senators, either formally or informally, who agreed to end the debate and take the vote. So those are two slightly different questions, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I think there's no question that on um, final passage under our Constitution, uh, you know, 51 votes get someone confirmed. Uh, the question is, should there be a right of senators if they feel that the nominee is extreme, if there are unanswered questions, if they feel the hearing process has been curtailed for whatever reason, to insist on extended debate and to exercise their right under the Senate rules to extend debate. That is uh, a provision that uh, even when Senate Democrats changed the rules to curtail that right of extended debate for lower court nominations, said we should keep it for the Supreme Court, it's so important, shouldn't be able to cut off debate with just 51 votes. Uh, that was the rules we were prepared to live under as Democrats, uh, and um, and I hope it's the rules Republicans are prepared to live under, and uh, and I th- hope it's incumbent on a president and the majority party to persuade senators and minority party that this is the kind of nominee about whom debate should be cut off. Um, so uh, I, I think the filibuster should remain, um, uh, but we'll see what happens. I guess what's really at the crux of the question is, I mean, let's say we had founding father Ron Klain here, yeah. who could you know, set a principle for, you know, the Supreme Court nominee should, you know, garner what sort of consensus among the nation? Is this a consensus among the party of the president? Or do you think broader uh, a broader coalition should be assembled but, to, but to get, confirm this nominee? You know, we don't need founding father Ron Klain. We had founding, <laughs> we had founding fathers, founding fathers. And what they did was they made a decision to say that this was a choice that could only be made by the cooperation of the president and the Senate, mm-hmm. right? So they could have said, look, a lot of ways to imagine our government. They say, look, the president gets to pick these people. In an earlier draft of the Constitution, they actually had the Senate electing members of the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So the decision to have this be a shared responsibility between the two branches you know, is a decision. And the Senate rules are part of how the Senate exercises their role in that process. So you know, I think that's a healthy balance that's in our Constitution. And, um, you know, I hope it's one that, that continues to go forward. Maybe this is a philosophical question. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe this is, um, you know, more uh, personal experience We question. get deep here on flat. Okay, oh, good, good. good. <laughs> um, let's say, uh, and I'm sure you have at points, but let's say you're interviewing uh, possible Supreme Court nominees. You know, what question do you think every Supreme Court nominee should have to answer? Well, I think that um, obviously you want to, you want to, have the nominees talk about their their general philosophy of constitutional interpretation, how they read the document, how they understand it, how they develop rulings under it, um, uh, their views of being a judge, um, and you know how they see their responsibilities. But I but I would say I think that um, uh, I think interviewing the executive branch interviewing these judges. Can be a bit overrated if someone's <laughs> someone's 55 or 60 years old or 52 years old or whatever you know 45 years old whatever and they've been a federal judge for a long time the best way to know that person is to read their judicial opinions read their academic writings and it's less about what someone says in a conversation and more about the body of work that that person uh, brings to bear and I think that um, uh, you know I think with with all the nominations I worked on you could really understand the person by looking at their careers, looking at the things they've written and the things they've said um, in speeches and, and articles and whatnot. I think that's the thing that tells the most.
Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you so much. I, I guess that ends our judicial questions. We do yeah. have one final question. Oh, okay, great. Back in 2014, we had a very special interview interview here uh, at Georgetown. A man told us what it was like to play you oh, in yeah. a movie. <laughs> so we have to ask, how does it feel to get played by Kevin Spacey? Well, um, it was obviously very flattering to be played by <laughs> someone of that caliber. Great, Not only a great actor, a great director, a great uh, philanthropist, mm-hmm. a great person. Um, Someone who really cares about politics and public life, and if you've watched that, if you watched the video, which is on the Georgetown website of, of this conversation Kevin Spacey and I had uh, to stand in for the Sullivan Lecture on Ethics and Politics in 2014, there are two things that jump out at you immediately. Uh, the first is how thoughtful he has been about these issues of ethics and politics and the various roles he's played. Richard III, Recount, the the movie about uh, Casino Jack, Jack Abramoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, House of Cards. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second thing is, is he is not shy about using the F word. <laughs> and um, and in fact, I believe this is the only video on the Georgetown website that has a parental warning notification <laughs> at the front of it uh, about the about the about the language uh, used because because wow. uh, Kevin was pretty pretty free about dropping the F bomb in Gaston Hall, <laughs> and um, and uh, so that was a, it was a little different than most of these Sullivan lectures, I think. <laughs> Um, but he is a he is a he is a great actor, a great a great philanthropist, and um, and really been active in politics for a long time, and really thinks about these issues very very hard. And when and I think um, you know brings a lot of that to bear, particularly on House of Cards, um, you know, which is a great study in ethics and politics, morality, ends and means. You know, all these things I think are well presented by that show. So you're a fan. You're a fan I'm a I'm a fan wow. of the show. Um, and uh, and a fan of Kevin's other work, of course, and um, of course, of course, of course. You know, but so. House of Cards might be a favorite among the fly on the wall staff. I say Christian can attest we're actually roommates too, and right above uh, our window sill is a Frank Underwood 2016 poster that I, I couldn't help but put up. Yeah, so. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Big fans here. Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks so much for for joining us, Mr. Ron Claim. We really appreciate uh, you giving us the time. Sure, yeah, happy to do it. So thanks, much. guys. <laughs> You were White House political director um, for President Bush, um, and you were, um, you know, you were, you were right in it during some of the biggest confirmation battles. Walk us through, because for a lot of people, um, you kind of see a nominee get nominated, um, and then you might see, you know, a nomination hearing. But a lot of people don't really understand what the process is yeah. like. How you know you go about finding a nominee? Mm-hmm. How you go about actually getting them nominated? Um, so it would be great if you could walk us through that. Well, you know, a president will uh, generally work with his legal team, uh, his counsel's office, uh, some folks from the Justice Department, uh, and they'll start with a relatively long list. And um, this list will be, frankly, curated over time because there's lots of appointments that occur. Obviously, only a few go to the Supreme Court. Um, And they'll often get input from senators and certainly people from the Judiciary Committee. And there will be a process where they narrow it and then they start to do, I think, a more serious vetting of these folks' legal opinions, their writings, their their backgrounds. You certainly, um, uh, most people who get to a pretty high court, an appellate court or a district court, 
have already been vetted personally, but you got there's a personal vet that needs to occur to make sure there's not going to be some embarrassing situation. And so then once you narrow it down, uh, the president meets with the 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 finalists, finals, um, you know, and makes his or her selection. You know, that's a that can take a few weeks, mm-hmm. but takes in most cases at least a couple months in to that, do it. Yeah. In that interview, what is the president asking them? Uh, you know, what is he looking for? It's easy to speak from President Bush's perspective. Mm-hmm. I can't speak for what Trump wanted to know, but right. uh, from President Bush's perspective, you know, I think he wants to know their overall philosophy on judicial matters. You know, he's not looking for specific you know, views on cases. Mm-hmm. He wants to know, you know, are they uh, a strict constructionist relative to the text or are they somebody who looks at the text as interpretive? Because um, that tends to be a lot of times where the fault lines lie on on major issues that, that people in the both parties care about. I also think they're just trying to get to know him as a person. You know, this is an appointment that's going to live on long after they are yeah. in office. So you want to have a sense of the, the person, and is this someone who, you know, uh, is going to not only be a good judge, but somebody who's going to be a leader on the court? I mean, because it's important, you know, for their legacy to have a, a justice who is, you know, certainly philosophically aligned with them, at least in terms of the way that they look at the Constitution, but also... You know, someone like Antonin Scalia was just such an outsized personality. You know, that in a in a in my view, in a very positive way. You know, that was a great pick. Mm-hmm. So sure, and I just want to dive a little bit deeper because, like we were talking about before, the whole mission of our podcast is to get deeper into you know those day to day decisions on a very personal level that sort of impact the mm-hmm. broader narrative that we see, especially with such an opaque process as a Supreme Court nomination. Uh, so everything moved really quickly, I'm sure, in those months, you know, relative to the body of work that had to get done. Could you just talk to us a little bit about your experience? You know, how were your interactions with the nominee, the potential nominee? How did you sort of help them get on a path to successful co- I, confirmation? So I played a, a different role in the process, not one that was political more than certainly mm-hmm. uh, uh, pouring through their judge records or advising them how to answer mm-hmm. a nomination hearing. That wasn't my role. My role was really about interacting and working with outside groups to build the, the case, the communications and the political case for them. So, uh, I, you know, I certainly saw them in meetings and had good interaction, but I was not a justice person on, a judicial person running around mm-hmm. the hill with the nominee. Um, it's really important. This is a big deal. And there's a lot of interest in the relative um, grassroots and making sure that that everybody is aligned, has all the information they need to be effective in communicating about a judge. So, like, this is what we're doing now. It's, I did it for Roberts and Alito in the White House as a White House staffer, helping kind of make sure um, information was flowing to outside groups and people who wanted to be supportive. And now, as somebody who's on the outside as a recipient of that information, it's making sure that there's things happening in the states. There's people being organized. There's letters being written to the newspapers and people calling to talk radio to talk about why these picks are the right picks and why they'll be good for the country. So um, it's a different role than say when uh, say Ron has, who is mm-hmm. who is a lawyer, um, but 
they both they all work in concert in these nominations. Sure, and just one last quick follow up. Uh, I know the whole nomination process sort of fits into a narrative, right? And the role you play with sort of crafting that external communications, uh, you know, what we would mm-hmm. see from the outside. Uh, so I want to talk about the fear of a filibuster, just because that's something that's coming up a lot uh, today, especially mm-hmm. when they're discussing the nuclear option with uh, Judge Gorsuch. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about how that fear of a possible filibuster and defeat of a nomination factored into the decisions of, you know, what you put out there to the media in choosing the the nominee. Just how that played out. I think that the um, you need to have a nominee that is really uh, flawless, and I think Judge Gorsuch is. I mean, there's you may not agree with his judicial philosophy, but you can't find anything to really criticize him about personally or it's just in the way that he... Uh, has carried himself um, sure. in the district court, and yeah. so in that regard, you know, it just you know, you as a president, you want to put somebody out there that people have a reason to support, and Democrats have a lot of reasons to support this guy. Doesn't mean they're going to, um, but I don't know that you know the reason that you would fear the filibuster is if you had a nominee that was sort of not up to par or you know, uh, had weak rulings, was all over the board philosophically, couldn't defend him or herself, it would be easier for the opposition party to filibuster him. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thanks so Thank much you. for taking the time. Yeah, we really That's appreciate it. Sure, my pleasure. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks so much. Hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode of Fly on the Wall podcast. We're going to go hit the beach in Florida. You guys should listen in next week for our next guest. We got some awesome people coming to you next week, so make sure you guys stay tuned. Friday mornings. Aloha. <laughs> we're not going. We're not going to Hawaii. We're, we're going totally to Florida. Going. I love that.